Well, good morning, everybody. Let's, um, we did this a while ago. Let's do this again. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, this is going to be a two-parter. We're going to come back to Psalm 23 next week and get more into the weeds exegetically of, of this psalm. But today we're going to take more of the 36,000-foot view of it. And I just want to start by talking about um, the church and, and us coming together to, to read God's Word and, and to fellowship, enjoy communion together. Um, the late musician, some of you maybe remember him, Rich Mullins, he was asked one time in an interview, why do you go to church every Sunday with all those hypocrites? And his response was one, I'm not very quick on my feet, but I, I'd love to think that I, I could respond in a similar way um, or just nod my head when, when somebody smarter said it. But he, he responded this way. He said, I never understood why going to church made you a hypocrite because nobody goes to church because they're perfect, if you've got it all together, you don't need to go. You can go to jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday morning. Every time you go to church, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people that you pass on the way there, to the people who greet you at the church doors, that you don't have it all together and that you need help, need direction. Now, that's a good baseline for why we're here together, worshiping. Um, we're looking for guidance. And there's something more than anything that this world has to offer that, that provides guidance. We're, we're thinking there has to be something more than, than what we can see and experience in this created world. And Christians believe that we found that something in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what's interesting to me. The search, largely in our culture, it continues. Now, if we think about the last century, it was supposed to be the greatest century. And, and we think, well, yeah, we, we can see some of the fruit of great things, wonderful things that have happened through progress. Um, we live in the most affluent culture that the world has ever known. The ha uh, average human lifespan is longer than it's ever been. We can buy stuff stream movies on demand. Um, we have a world of news, entertainment, uh, self-help programs at our fingertips. 
And yet, in spite of all that, and wealth and entertainment, things to do, busyness, we're longing for something that we can't sometimes name. And I'm speaking generally of our culture. And this is to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we're looking for the scent of a flower we've not yet found. The echo of a tune we've not heard. News from a country we haven't yet visited. Again, this was supposed to be these last 100, 123 years. This time of great progress and human flourishing. And yet, by the time the 20th century ended, we discovered that 187 million people had died in war, making it the deadliest century in history. A British historian by the name of Paul Johnson wrote a book called Modern Times, and he attributed the 20th century's huge death toll to the immense growth of a couple of things, three things, the organized state power, the decline of traditional religion, and the rise of totalitarian ideologies. And what we found is that, well, progress, great as it is, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Now, more recently, the past three years, our mortal concerns have primarily been fixed on a microscopic virus, along with the usual suspects of war and social unrest. Now, even beyond that, there are other, maybe what we would call existential concerns that on the surface may be a bit more benign. What Neil Postman prophecy in a 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Everything today, it seems like, is for entertainment. Our culture is kind of a vaudeville act. Just give me something to do. I want the dopamine rush. Just, I want to be entertained. And it's this pattern that we can sometimes find ourselves in that I'm sort of bored. I'm searching for direction, never really finding it. And so I'm just going to entertain myself to death. I think what that speaks to is a human desire longs for something more than affluence, comfort, or even power because we're created to desire more. So we find ourselves in this weird place where we're drowning in freedoms. Do anything. You can be anything. And yet we're thirsting for meaning. An Australian theologian, Mark Sayers, writes it this way, Our tanks of freedom are overflowing, bursting at the seams, yet our tanks of meaning and relationship are dry and empty. So in this brave new post-COVID digitized global consumer-driven world, could it be that we're longing for meaning and relationships? Could it be that comfort, technology, affluence are not it? It doesn't scratch the itch, that we desire something more because we're made for more. And that's where the church comes in. Because the church is about presence, God's presence in our midst as he reveals himself to us in, in the word and in worship and song and in communion and community, fellowship. So we practice his presence when we gather, looking and longing for his presence everywhere when we leave these doors. And we go to our work where we spend time with our families. We celebrate the 4th of July, finding that in God alone, we have life. And he's the one who answers the questions, the deep questions. And he's the source of, and goal of meaning. 
And in him, we ultimately find peace and rest. And oh, how we need rest. So the message this morning, as we look at Psalm 23, it's simple. It's really comprised of just two questions. And this will be brief. Um, when a pastor says this will be brief, don't listen to it. That, be afraid. Be very afraid. But no, this will, this will be relatively brief. Two questions. Who is the Lord? And what does he do? And as we look at Psalm 23, we're going to try to answer those. As to the first question, who is the Lord in verse 1 of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Who is this Lord? We say, well, this is kind of a Captain Obvious moment. Well, but we notice that the Lord is in capital letters, at least in our English translations. If we would look at the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we'd see this word Adonai. But for Israelites, it's, it's Yahweh, the creator, the one who was there in the beginning, who created all things out of nothing. That is the Lord. Now, that's simple enough. We say, Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh, who created all things, who knows all things, who knows us and knows where he's leading us. There's a teleos to the universe. There's a way to the end, ultimately to God's glory and our joy. The question and answer, number one of the Westminster Catechism, what's the chief goal of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? That, that's the, the plan, the purpose of all things. And that's, that's God who's given that to us, this great plan. But this side of the cross, we take this a step further. In the gospel of John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. We even read in Revelation 7 and earlier in the service, this reference to Jesus as the good shepherd. Jesus identifying himself as the very Lord of whom David speaks in Psalm 23. And this is an audacious claim as we make this, and as Jesus made it, I am the good shepherd. We could look at his other I am statements. That's a loaded term, one that ultimately got him killed. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. He identifies himself as the Lord, even in Psalm 23. Now, if we would do a deep dive into Christology, we would maybe look at Hebrews 1 as well, where the Son, in Hebrews 1, verse 8, is described as, you, O God, your throne is forever. And you, Lord, speaking of the Son, created the heavens and the earth, referring back to Psalms 45 and 102, Jesus the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature is the Lord, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Lord is our shepherd. Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. Jesus, who is fully God, and yet who is like us. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Jesus sympathizes with us. He cares for us. He cares for you. He knows you, the sheep of his pasture. So that's question one. Question two, what does this good shepherd 
do? Well, first, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, I want to do something. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark 6. If you don't have your Bible uh, in, in a paper form or on your phone, no worries. Just, just listen. And I want to read this to you. This is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles, whom Jesus had sent out, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he, Jesus, saw a great crowd, and he had, on, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. So send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. I want you to stop right there. Don't go any further. This is a desolate place, we read in verse 35 of Mark's gospel, chapter 6. The hour is late. I want you to picture in your minds grayness, dusk, getting dark. And, and we read this term, desolate place, is used three times in this passage. It's what's called a pericope. But then look at verse 39. Jesus, looking at these crowds that were like sheep without a shepherd, he commanded them, he makes me lie down, to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, somebody who loves literature, this this, this color that we, we see desolation, desolation, dark, gray, dusky, and then this burst of color, the green grass. Now, maybe the Jewish believers who were there, they're thinking, oh, they're putting some things together. This is maybe our shepherd. But more so, those who are reading the first century Jews who are reading this, who know Psalm 23, they're reading the story and they read that, yeah, uh, they're, they're like uh, sheep without a shepherd. And, and, and the green grass, he makes me, he commands us to sit down in the green grass. This is the shepherd. What does he do? He commands us. He commands us as a leader commands. Jesus then provides for them. Provides for them teaching and and food. But I want us to think about this idea of Jesus commanding. That's a part and parcel of being a Christian. We have a leader. We're looking for somebody to provide guidance and direction. And, and we look to Jesus. Are you going to be the one who's going to provide this direction? I don't know how to do life. And I'm looking for something. I'm searching. And I have this existential dread that there's something more than this. 
maybe, maybe Jesus is the one. And he gives a command. And sometimes we don't like this in our culture. We don't like commands. You're not the boss of me. You're not going to tell me what to do. But I think more so from, from a parent's perspective, we do this because we love our children. When your four-year-old is running out of the street, you say, stop, I command you, come back. Your three-year-old is practicing juggling with steak knives. You say, no, stop, don't do that going to hurt you. Jesus saying to these sheep who are lost, no, come and sit. I command you sit. Sit on my feet. That's the first thing that the shepherd does. Sit at my feet in a pleasant place. And we have this beautiful picture. It's peaceful. It suggests something I think most of us know to be true. In order to rest and to not want, we have to be free from anxiety. And sheep have a hard time laying down and resting. They need to be content. And we have this fear. This, it's a powerful force. And you can't rest unless, no, I have somebody who's going to protect me who's close. So Jesus is saying, come, sit, be close to me. With his presence comes tranquility. When we see the good shepherd, we can be at peace. Now also, in order to be at peace, the sheep must also be free from hunger. And this is true for newborns and 50-year-old men. There's this thing called hangry. It's hard to be content. It's hard to have peace if you're just hungry and you're cranky and you haven't had your, your bottle or your, your dinner. So what does Jesus do? He feeds them in Mark 6. He feeds them. And the idea is not, you'll have a good meal and then go on your merry way. Jesus is pointing to something deeper. Do you remember the line there's uh, in, I think it was the first Pirates of the Caribbean, Captain Barbosa? He said, um, we're, uh, oh, what is it? We thirst but are never quenched. We're hungry but we're never satisfied, never sated. For Jesus, feeding the 5,000, that wasn't an end in its, of itself. Jesus says, I will provide something for you, something more than merely food. Sit under my teaching, stay close to me, and follow me. And I think so often we, bringing it back to the present day, we often look to be fed with the stuff of the world, which invariably disappoints, never really satisfied. The good shepherd leads his sheep to where there is nourishing grass, and he gives food that satisfies, but not merely just bread, and I get my three squares a day, but also real spiritual food, because we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is teaching. That's why he says to the people, sit, and he teaches them. And then finally, in order to be at peace, the sheep need to be free of thirst. We need water, but our problem, my problem is I'm often drinking from polluted streams, broken cisterns, and finding them dry. We need living water. And so maybe, along with the woman at the well, we can say, sir, Jesus, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Our good shepherd leads us beside quiet waters so that we might drink ultimately from him who is living water and be truly satisfied. And we do that when we take communion in, in just a little minute. We're going to be partaking of the bloodshed of Jesus, spiritual sustenance strengthened by him and what he offers to drink.
So the good shepherd protects, feeds, waters. He satisfies. He cares for his sheep and gives us peace. And that's the good news. This Psalm 23, all of Scripture points to Jesus, right? Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote the book, Every Story Whispers His Name. And it's true. All of Scripture points to Christ. Jesus is our good shepherd. And we can believe that he'll provide for us. He'll care for us. He'll feed us. He'll, he'll slake our thirst because of his life, his death, his resurrection. The tomb was empty. He's seated at their father's right hand. And we can go to him. And we can have confidence going to the Father through Jesus, our intermediary. And he intercedes for us. And we can find grace and mercy when we're in need. And we're branded as such as his sheep with the circumcision of the heart. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, do, you have a new heart. God has done open heart surgery and given you a heart to believe in him, to trust him, to know him. And if you're, you're somebody here who's like, man, I don't really know Jesus. I invite you. There, there's actually prayers written in the left column of the bulletin that you can see. Jesus knows you. He cares about you. He's a good shepherd. He'll lead you beside quiet waters. Next week, we're going to talk about it. That doesn't mean that all your problems magically go away and there's no wolves and, and, and there's no alphas who are trying to take over, but, but he does provide direction. And he cares for you. He knows you. He loves you. Now, our chief duty then is to develop confidence in this good shepherd. Walking with him daily, moment by moment. We don't need a map. We don't need charts of the end times or a prophetic word about what's going to happen next. We need a shepherd who cares for us. And our responsibility is to follow that shepherd. And so our application is learn Jesus. The disciplines of grace. I want to read scripture. I talked last week about memorizing Psalm 1. And then continue. You go on from there. Memorize Psalm 23. Hide God's word in your heart. Moment by moment throughout the day. Go back to his word. I want to learn you, Jesus. I want to know what you want from me. I want to know how to follow you. What's pleasing to you? What's good for your glory and my joy? There, when I was a, um, doing chaplaincy at the University of Pennsylvania, um, a few of the students decided that, you know, there's this habit, and I talk about this all the time because I think it's true for all of us. You know, you, you have a moment to yourself. What do you do? Pull out your phone and Sometimes you don't even know what you're looking for. It's you just pull it out and look at it. So what these students decided to do, every time that they catch themselves doing that, oh, got my little ESV Bible app. I'm going to that. And these next 30 seconds that I would otherwise, otherwise be looking at, like cat videos, instead I'm going to be reading God's Word, maybe just a verse or two, maybe just a word, and then maybe segueing into a little time of prayer. So daily, moment by moment, learning Jesus. That's a discipline of grace. Now, the last thing I want to say is, is this is a very personal psalm, right? We, we start in the third person, he, the good, the good shepherd, but then we, we transition into my, I, me, me, my. Make sure that you are one of his sheep. And you do that through personal faith. Put your faith in the one who truly cares for you.
Let's pray together, friends. Lord, you are good and gracious and kind, and um, Lord, we long to know you and, and the way that you care for us. Help me as a wayward sheep, a, a silly, stupid sheep so often. Help me, Lord, to follow. Command me to, to sit at your feet and then teach me and then feed me. Feed us, Lord God, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord God, would it truly nourish our souls that as we go into this holiday week, Lord, that our hearts would be light and we would know that um, just as there's a great blessing of freedom in this country, there is an even deeper, greater blessing of freedom in you by your Spirit. So, Lord, um, thank you, God, for your word. Write it deeply on our hearts this week, Lord God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.